Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, your producer and co-host. So happy you're here, folks. We've got a fantastic interview today, something all of you will want to listen to closely. Our guest today is Dr. David Rosmarin. He is a clinical psychologist. He is also associate professor at Harvard Medical School program director of McLean Hospital, on and on and on I could go about him. But listen, today we had a fantastic interview. He is also the author of Thriving with Anxiety. He gives us nine easy-to-follow strategies to thrive with your anxiety. He gives us really good news about anxiety today, folks. You will want to listen closely to this whole interview. Dr. David Rosmarin, so happy he's here, so happy you're here with us. Now, without any further ado, here's the host of our show, Ian Cron. Hello, Enneagram friends. Yeah, once again, we're back talking about the mystery of the human personality and the human adventure through the lens of the Enneagram. Today, we have with us our new friend, Dr. David Rossmarin, Enneagram 3 with a 2, and actually the author of a brand new book that I'm stoked about. It's called Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You. I think, Anthony, the name of this show today is going to be called the good news about anxiety. I like it. Yeah. What do you think, man? Yes. I am stoked because I actually think there is a lot of good news about anxiety. And 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 it's going to be really exciting, I think, to talk about how do we reframe anxiety uh, in, the, the, in, a, in a new way that, that helps people live in a, a healthy relationship with something that's just core to what it means to be human. Right. Anyway, Dr. David Rossmarin, welcome to Typology. Thank you so much. Real honor to be here. So you uh, have some familiarity with the Enneagram. You, um, we had a little bit of a conversation about it here before we hit record. Tell us a little bit about your exposure to the Enneagram and, and perhaps how it's helped you become a better expression of who you are. Well, in some ways, it was one of the reasons I got into psychology in the first place. I mean, I remember playing with this tool back in high school. You know, it was the kind of thing in, with like, uh, you know, friends and just looking and and seeing what type am I. And, and I kind of got away from the personality psychology. Once I got into clinical and I was exposed to abnormal psychology and all the things like anxiety and depression, I'm like, wow, this is... This is just so cool, you know, how to actually, you know, help people really in the trenches. And, I, and I've spent the better part of my 20-year career plus another, oh, man, many, many other years of, of uh, training, um, you know, helping people in that and sort of moving away from it. But, uh, you know, I'll tell you, having, getting on this podcast and being able to come back to it in, in uh, a little more has been such a, it's been really cool. It is a really interesting tool. If, you know, I, I don't want to call it a school, though some, I guess, would actually. Um, but it's uh, when we when we think about this idea that there are nine personality styles, one of which we gravitate toward and adopt in childhood, just as a way to cope, to feel safe. These adaptive stratagems um, coalesce around different people. Yeah, it's an interesting model for just talking about the human experience, and um, I, I've, you know, I speak with psychologists and psychiatrists, mental health professionals. And of course it runs the gamut, you know, people who are data driven types, you know, look at the Enneagram and they kind of roll their eyes and then other people look at it and they're like, 
interesting could be useful. And uh, it sounds like you fall into the latter camp. I would be a data-driven type who looks at it and says, wow, this is very interesting and very useful. And uh, like I said, coming back to it has been a real bit of a journey for me. And I've, I've appreciated that opportunity. Let's talk about that journey just for a second. You are an Enneagram 3, known as the performers, sometimes known as the achievers. Yeah. We, we like to say that they are um, people who have a need to succeed, to appear successful, uh, to avoid failure. Mm-hmm. Um, they typically are very image conscious people along with Enneagram 2s and 4s. They are, those three are the three most image conscious numbers on the Enneagram. How has knowing you're a three illuminated parts of yourself to yourself in a way that's been enlightening and helpful? Yeah. I mean, you know, definitely being at Harvard Medical School and having like a large private practice in multiple states, I can kind of see how and why I got there and that drive to push myself to the next level, both academically in terms of clinical work, in terms of administrative work, in terms of teaching you know, I really do sort of push myself uh, as much as I can. I'm a marathon runner and I've done 11 marathons, in one in each of the last 11 years. Um, so I kind of knew that about myself, but I don't know if I really saw it as so central until looking at the Enneagram. It was a bit, it was a bit jarring, actually, but... But I, but you know, the two wing was really kind of what rescued me, and I, and I think that that's actually quite true for me. Hmm. What do you mean when you say that? Right. Well, I'll tell you. So, you know, if I understand, you know, correctly, you know, there's also this caring, helpful, wanting to connect with other people piece, and I don't think it's always about an image with me. I mean, maybe sometimes it is when I'm feeling particularly anxious. But if I'm being real and genuine, and I think I've been able to do a lot more of that over the last 10 years in my life, that's really where I sort of shine, where I can both push myself forward, but also acknowledge how struggle and how the importance of connecting with others, being more empathic, being more human as opposed to just being a performer. And uh, when I lean into that wing, that really is so important. Mm. I believe you said that when you acknowledge your vulnerability it actually enhances your productivity well that's where the book came from uh-huh. and that that's where the book came from you know anxiety's got this really bad rap and once i kind of started to and i've been helping people with anxiety for like i said 20 years and i think for the first 10 or so i didn't really acknowledge my own struggles but once i did that actually made it easier for me to push myself forward i didn't have to that's a- try so hard i mean i still push don't get me mm. wrong but like it made it easier because I wasn't. It wasn't coming from an unhealthy place. It was coming from a place of acknowledging that just being human means to, we're going to struggle, and that's that's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean I'm weak. That's, it just means I'm a person. Yeah, that's an important revelation for a three. That's a big step. I, if it weren't for my wife, the two, I don't even think I'd have it in the in my profile. I'll be honest. Like <laughs> she really just anchors me and makes me. She she you know when when I'm not empathic, when I'm not altruistic when I'm not putting the family first, her and the kids. It's like, it just, it just doesn't work at home. And and I've learned over time, like I gotta, I gotta, I gotta be, I gotta be there. It sounds like something happened 10 years ago. I wouldn't know. That was was a a watershed moment. It wasn't a watershed moment. It wasn't an inflection point. It was a sort of a, a number of things in my life that just 
made me realize it, it was it was not a specific incident. I wish it were so clean, but mm-hmm. it's it's more of an evolution. It's more of a journey. Mm-hmm. But I don't mm-hmm. think I don't know ten years ago if that too would have been as strong as it is for me today. I, I really don't think so. Right. Um, I think that every decade of life poses different questions. That could be. And I think, at least in my experience, right, and we we almost have different tasks that are assigned to us in different decades, you know, and I, I realize that's a little clean, but for purposes of conversation, right, and I think as we get older, if we're on a path toward personal growth and uh, self-realization, whatever term we want to use, that our our focus changes. And, you know, in that first, you know, let's call it 30 years, we spend a lot of time proving adequacy. <laughs> and I think in the as we get older, the agenda becomes more and more soulish than it does, you, you know, um, uh, anything else. You know, it, it, we start to ask different questions and, and I think more interesting questions as we as we get older, right? And that's at least been my my experience. So you're a three. When you said that, you sort of smiled and laughed. Was there a revelation about? There you go again. Were you? Was it like, oh my gosh, I'm a three? Like, oh, what? A little bit. You know, as a clinical psychologist, usually the people who are pursuing attainment, achievement, sacrificing anything to get there, they're not the nicest people. Hmm. They're not really empathic, kind, caring, the kind of people you want to hang out with. And I think I used to be a bit like that. And that was hmm. that was hard for me. I, I think I can still be abrasive and, and challenging at times, if I'm being hmm. honest. When I don't lean into that anxiety, when I don't acknowledge it, I think I can still, you know, um, go there to focus, focus too much on my personal image and not be tolerant of failure on myself or definitely on other people as well. And, and that's not pleasant, mm-hmm. but I, I, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've tried, like I said, like when I'm really, th- my, my personal thriving is not when I'm in control. It's when I acknowledge that I'm not in control and I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really where I'll thrive, although it doesn't feel like it. Right. And so you, uh, I'm assuming given your CV that you, were or are somebody for whom productivity is a great value. <laughs> <laughs> what makes you say that? <laughs> well, I mean, have you experienced a shift in your life where you realized at some deep heart level that productivity does not equal value? I'm getting there. I'm, I'm thinking I'm finally, I'm finally turning. I've been evolving towards that over time. And I think I'm, I'm moving more into that place mm. where I can allow myself to, to struggle. I was speaking to one of my spiritual mentors recently, and uh, there's currently an area in my life where I'm actually feel like I'm really struggling and really not doing well. It's a huge challenge. It's one of the biggest professional challenges I've ever faced. Yet in other areas, things are, you know, with the book and, you know, it was on Good Morning America and my, like my faculty reappointment at Harvard was just issued for five years. I mean, you know, I'm able to s- tolerate this incredible struggle in some ways because I feel more anchored and that's given me the 
capacity to be like, I don't have to be incredibly successful at everything. I don't have to be the best at everything. I can really mm-hmm. struggle and really fail in some ways, some ways, some areas of my life and still be successful. And then there's another part of me, which is like, you know what? I don't even have to be successful at all because I have a loving wife and I have amazing kids, you know, people who love me and friends and my family and my spirituality. And that's been, I'm not there, but I'm, I'm moving mm-hmm. there. I'm trying to. Yeah. It's so interesting when I speak with Enneagram threes, and I, I think you'll allow me to do this, but when you speak about this area of your life where there's a, I can feel the vulnerability and the tenderness in it and the, the actuality of it, I can feel it, you know, when you're talking, when I, when I, when I hear with, with Enneagram threes sometimes, and particularly with men in my experience, Sometimes you, and Anthony knows this expression, I call it the lost boy look. And it's this look of sometimes where the eyes are almost saying, do I have value in your eyes yet? A hundred percent for me. And that's what I was picking up from you as you were speaking. It's a hundred percent there for me. There's definitely an aspect of me of wanting to impress my parents. There's no question. Mm -hmm. Especially my father. And I think that's what you're getting Mm -hmm. at. Yes. No question. Yeah. There's that, uh, there's this. I didn't realize that until a couple of years ago. Mm. It wasn't even on my radar. Can you talk about what happened to? Um, I don't know if anything happened. Um, well, there was something that happened. My father got cancer. And I saw that our dynamic didn't change the way I expected it to change. And also I was successful in other areas and like, I didn't get the acknowledgement. So at some point I was like, no matter what I do, I'm not going to get the acknowledgement that I need. Mm. And those two things were, I think, very painful and coalesced and sort of, I've been grappling with like, okay, well maybe that lost boy is, needs to find himself as opposed to finding someone else to value him. Mm. Thank you so much for your willingness to to speak vulnerably about You're it. You have to I, send me a bill for this session. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I this is why I love the Enneagram, right? Because it in and of itself it's interesting and it's great, but it's such a portal way into meaningful conversations. That's a great point. Um, and I think that to me is what makes it a valuable tool. Um, when you were talking, what what came to my mind was the power of blessing. You know, I'm a father of three. And um, we don't talk about this very much, really, um, when I, I, I think we should, which is how do we pass the blessing on to our children so that they, I mean, literally, like a blessing, like hands on the head moment yeah. of you, I see you, you are beautiful, and you are free. And you know what I mean? Like, I wonder if we, I wish that was just part of our, because I think for Enneagram threes, for example, like Anthony, this is great. Like we could talk mm-hmm. about a blessing for each of the nine types, really. Uh, to be able to say to an, uh, an Enneagram three child, you know, I see you, you have value, and it transcends anything that you have accomplished or what you do. But simply by your being here, uh, being invited to this party called life, you have value in my eyes. And just to, to, bestow the blessing, which is a religious quote-unquote word, need not be, Correct. but to to just 
bestow a blessing. I'm, I can think in my own life, boy, that would have saved me a lot of years. I can think of one or two times my whole life that that happened. But had it happened mm. more, I would be honestly measurably more not only emotionally grounded, but more successful. <laughs> mm. Interesting. I wouldn't have had to push so hard. And I also would have recognized areas that are worthy of developing and other areas that are worthy of not developing. And I'd probably be further along in my journey because I would have been able to accept what my real strengths are as opposed to focusing in areas of weakness, which are actually harder to develop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anthony? Yes, Ian. Now, brother, you know Thrive Market has been our go-to for organic groceries for a while now. Absolutely. Whether we're looking for certified gluten-free products or vegetarian snacks that meet our plant-based diet needs, Thrive Market makes it easy to curate our own shopping experience with the click of a button and trust that it's made with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. Yeah, most of the time I eat pretty clean and I feel confident knowing that Thrive restricts hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories so I can get organic snacks low sugar alternatives, and other essentials that are healthy for me. And as a Thrive member, I save money on every single grocery order on average. I save over 30% each time I shop. So for example, I love Thrive Market's organic basmati rice, and I save 48% in my last order. Ooh, that's amazing. Let's tell our listeners where they can check this out. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash typology for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E, market.com slash typology, thrivemarket.com slash typology. Hey, everybody. We're talking to our new friend, David Rossmarin, Enneagram 3, with a two-wing author of the new book, Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You. So as an Enneagram 3, and we're going to get to this book because I'm actually juiced to talk about it. Sure. What would the blessing have contained in it that would have really spoken to you at your deepest level? You know what I mean? Like what words would have been said I to you? I think you you kind of summed it up before, but to paraphrase or to put it in my own words, I'm here for you no matter what. I love you no matter what. It's unconditional love. That's mm. the, that's what it is. I'm not mm-hmm. my love, my support, my connection to you is not dependent on how successful you are, your performance, your adequacy in A, B, C, or D, your grades, your you know, ability to juggle, whatever. Not that I can juggle. I can't. But uh, my wife can. Um, but your you know, capacity for this, that, and the other, it's simply because you're here, simply because you're mine, simply because you're beautiful, simply because you're, worth, you're worthy of being loved. That would have that would it still would to this day i think that would change me i'm mm. not like i've only needed that when i was a kid you know i'm you know man oh man i love i just love that we have touched on this idea of words of for lack of a, a different phrase just words of blessing for children and if i had known my own children as i do now they were late adolescents by the time i was really studying the enneagram but just thinking about words of of blessing specific to their type 
You know what I mean? Like, or, or I should say informed by their type, right? I wouldn't generate one just around their type, but because everybody's more complicated than their type. But I think it, I think it's a very powerful sort of notion of how to, how, how, how to give a, a blessing that supports somebody throughout their life. A memory of it. Anyway, on to other things. I want to talk about anxiety in each sure. of these Enneagram types. Because, you know, all nine Enneagram types have anxiety. That's just the human condition, sure. right? Uh, it's a, it's a, just a function of, of who we are. It's a function of evolution. We'd all be dead without anxiety, uh, probably on the, on, on no, the we Serengeti. Would. We'd all, we would. right? Yeah. Absolutely right. So I want to ask you a question. I want you to distinguish four different words for me. Fear, anxiety, stress, and worry. Because I think they're different, aren't they? They are. Yeah. You're making me perform. And as a three, I'm going to do it. Um, All right. Okay. So stress, uh, that was the first one, right? Um, Stress is an imbalance between um, how many resources you have and how many demands you have. And if your Mm. demands greatly exceed your resources, you will feel stressed. And it's mathematical. It's mathematical. If you can reduce the, the demands and you can increase the resources, to retain or to regain, I should say, equilibrium, you will reduce the stress. So if you're strapped for cash, you need more money or less expenses. If you are strapped mm-hmm. for time, you need to do less or you need somehow to get more time, which is very hard to do. Right. Usually it's chopping the, the, the demands as opposed to increasing the resources, but uh, a combination of both will do it. And that is stress. Um, okay. Anxiety and fear are related. Let's do fear first. Fear is a healthy... You mentioned the Serengeti, a, a healthy response of the nervous system when you have an actual tangible threat. And all the physiological responses, the heart palpitations, this shortness of breath, the muscle tension, the uh, stomach upset, all of that is because your body is going through these, your adrenaline is pumping through your system in order to um, immobilize you to be able to face that threat. So facing you know, I don't know, God forbid, like a, a shooter facing uh, a trauma, facing a war, you know, facing whatever it is. Anxiety is the exact same, but there's one difference. Do either of you know what that one is? Yeah, I think I do. Yeah? Yeah, it's it's fear. It, well, it's it's more projective, right? It's, it's uh, anxiety would be m- more like fear in the absence of a clear and present danger. Exactly. So it's more projective, more like what if, Right, Correct. like, well, what if that happened, or what if that happened? Well, we'll you know, get to the what didn't if. happen. The what if is actually worry, and we'll get there. We'll get there. But it's basically a fear response without the presence of a tangible threat right in front of you. Mm-hmm. So if you're clamming up in front of an audience, usually you're going to be fine. You've done this before, I imagine. And if you haven't, then even then, you sometimes you wing it. And what's the worst that can happen? You're not going to die. I mean, it might be uncomfortable, you might get a little embarrassed, but it's you know. People have panic attacks. I've never lost a patient to a panic attack, ever. I never will. Panic will not kill you, but they're convinced, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, right? I'm having a heart attack. Mm-hmm. They end up in an ER because of it. So again, the sense of a threat, which is not actually present. Now, worry is the what ifs. Now, you guys are going to love this. It's in my book. You're going to love it. People think worry is actually a form of anxiety. It's not. It's a way of avoiding anxiety. Because what Ooh, you're saying is, okay. yeah, this is Tom Borkovec's work, a, ma- a major player in the cognitive behavior therapy world. I have a whole section on it in my book because it's that worthy. It's, it's amazing. And he wrote that when I'm saying, what if 
I run out of money. What if I run out of money? What if I run out of money? It's a, it's a, it's just the what ifs are a loop in your head that doesn't actually take you. It actually prevents you, sorry, prevents you from going in your real mind's eye and going in the depths of your emotions to what actually would happen if you ran out of money. Hmm. Most people don't answer the question of what if they don't say, well, then I don't know, maybe, you know, I would lose my house. Maybe my family would leave me. Maybe I wouldn't have a job at all. Maybe, you know, and then actually going there in your mind. So one of the strategies, whatever, uh, of dealing with worry is actually to answer the question mm. and then to answer the next question and to really lean into the anxiety and to become vulnerable and to, to cry. Like if you're not crying at the end of that process, you haven't hit, you haven't hit the, the pay dirt. That's where so the most mm, people with worry will. just stay in a loop. Correct. You you're avoiding your anxiety and you're staying in a cognitive loop. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. So let's keep going because I want to make sure I have, I have I've got about a zillion thoughts right <laughs> now. But I want uh, let's let's move on to uh, we we covered fear, anxiety, worry, and stress. Right now, the, here's how I sometimes distinguish between worry and anxiety. Worry to me is a very uh, ruminative kind of mental mm -hmm. state, whereas anxiety is a much more bodily felt experience. So, you know, you, you have either a panic or verging on panic, it, but it's in the body, man. I mean, like, like when I worry sometimes, it's just from the neck up, right? I, my brain's just looping well, around. What about, and, what about your shoulders and what about your stomach? You never have sort of ten muscle tension? Some. A little bit. Yeah. And I don't want to say that there's not overlap in between some of these states, you Correct. know, um, but to me, anxiety is uh, one of the reasons that, like, for example, anticipatory anxiety, where you're, you're just in a state where you're actually afraid of the body, the bodily sensation of anxiety. Yeah. Um, so to me, again, it's maybe a false distinction, but for me, worry and anxiety, one feels more cognitive and just up at my head and thinking, 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 thinking versus anxiety, which, which seems to be a full body experience for me. Yeah. Well, you know, I hear that. I hear what you're saying and I wouldn't disagree. I think that anxiety has three components, cognitive, behavioral, and uh, physiological. And some people lean a little more cognitive. Some people lean a little more physiological, like the panickers, people who have panic attacks. Mm -hmm. Some people lean you know, a little more into the emotional side of things, like people with borderline personality disorder. Some people lean sure. a little more behavioral, where they're extremely avoidant of things, like somebody who's, you know, avoidant of elevators or avoidant of planes, and they'll take a train from Chicago to California. And I've seen that before, you know, where they're, they're behaviorally avoidant, but, you know, they're, they're actually, with the other symptoms, they're not physically present. So we can have, you know, any of these can be manifestations of anxiety, including worry, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Mm hmm. So what, what for you, mm -hmm. because all books have some memoirish quality to them. Um, oh, for sure. I speak about myself very openly in my own anxiety, which I never acknowledged for the first 10 years of my career right here. I'm the anxiety expert. Why would I acknowledge this? And then I'm like, you know what? I'm done. I'm, I'm acknowledging this, especially after COVID, right? Like everyone had anxiety and it really transformed my personal, my, not my personality. That's probably true too. Also, I slipped there, but I meant it transformed my professional approach towards this. So yeah, I'll go there. Okay. What are you anxious about? What typically brings up anxiety for you? Failure. Um, mm -hmm. If I feel like I'm failing at something, it's terrible. Mm. And therein mm. lies the greatest opportunity I have to connect with my, my wife 
to connect with my spirituality, to connect with others, and to dig deep and find resources that I never knew I had. And to accept myself mm. for who I am, even if I do fail, frankly. Mm-hmm. And all of that happened now, because of anxiety. See, this is fantastic. So I was thinking through types, and I'm going to do this super fast, so don't, don't worry. But I was thinking about what causes anxiety for different types, right? And, and there are certain buttons that can get pushed, right? So you just actually articulated one for a three, right? Sure. Which is like, I'm failing. For Whoa, sure. panic, anxiety, right? Well, for a one, the perfectionists, sometimes we, we now call them the improvers, uh, I think it's, and this is not the necessary, I'm just giving an examples of things that could cause anxiety. But one could be feeling a, like a loss of control and they can't accomplish everything they think they need to get done in the right way and in the right time. You know, like there's this, that can elevate anxiety yeah. for the one. For the two, I think it's when their own personal needs, these are called the givers, as you know, they can become anxious when meeting their own personal needs comes into conflict when someone else's personal needs uh, are, uh, are present to them as well, if that makes sense, right? Well, whose needs do I meet first, right? Like, oh, gosh, you know, that creates anxiety. I think for fours, and Anthony, you and I are fours, I think sometimes anxiety arises when they, they feel like they've lost connection with the larger significance or purpose of their life. Yep. Wow. That's deep. Yeah. Like larger transcendent issues, right? I think for fives, they become anxious when they feel overwhelmed by unanticipated feelings. Oh my God. This is amazing. Um, I'm like, yeah, I can't I, believe what you're sharing with me. This is incredible. So I think, thanks. Well, I think with sixes, which is probably the most anxious number on the Enneagram, it has to do with uh, feelings of uncertainty or feeling unhitched to an authority source that can provide them with sense of control and certitude. Um, so obviously it could be a rabbi, it could be a pastor, it could be a political figure, it could be whatever. If they lose, if they feel unhitched to the, because they don't trust themselves, their own internal compass, right? If they feel unhitched to the authority source, they, they can feel very frightened. Sevens, I think when they feel deprived, the enthusiast, deprivation, uh, FOMO would be a, a low level example. Yeah. Or trapped without possibility, without options. Yeah. Right. Um, eights around absence of control and mastery. I think when they feel that, they, and then, but for the eight, how the anxiety three though, how, how's that not similar? How's not the same as, uh, not the same as threes? Uh, which one now? Eights, eights and, threes and threes in terms of that. Uh, well, interesting. You should say that. So three sevens and eights are the three most assertive or aggressive numbers on the Enneagram. I think for them, w- the difference would be that when the the eight feels out of control, it can manifest or express itself as anger. And the three is much more, it isn't their go-to emotion like it is for an eight. Like threes are more self-controlled typically. And part of it is, has to do with their image, right? They're not going to pop, right? Like, like it's more measured. And so the, I think the, the image consciousness keeps that, 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 it's the explosive anger that eights can have in control. I got news for you. My eight is pretty high. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Well, so just, it's really common. So in reality, David, we're, you are all nine types. You have all nine types. Right, but the second you one can, to a three is my eight. Oh, on your and, score. And it's not even that far off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then nine would be, um, I think nines, the peacemakers would experience a lot of anxiety when there's relational turmoil in the environment. 
Um, that's my and that's when, my that's my wife. <laughs> okay, and so when there's a, uh, and when their own unacknowledged or unwanted desires start to percolate to the surface and kind of like throws off their inner calm, which they want to retain at all costs, they can become anxious, right? And th- and then fall asleep to themselves is kind of what they do. So. Anyway, I just wanted to put that through there for our listeners who are thinking, okay, well, I'm not a three or tell me about these different sort of triggers for anxiety for each of the types. And I just gave one for each of the types. So there could be a ton more I could uh, enumerate. And the eights eights are like, in terms of the difference between the eights and the threes with this earlier question, it's much more around uh, control than a three, right? Yeah, I think, um, again, there's... This stuff is so soupy, sure. you know what I mean? Like yeah. to make clean cut distinctions on these things is 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 at your own peril, you know? Um, I think what will really hack off a three versus the eight is when somebody blocks a goal, stands between them and, and a goal that they want to achieve. That's where the three, and the three was much more diplomatic than the eight is. Like the three will be more like, let's try and find a way for both of us to win. The eight's not as much a negotiator. <laughs> You know what I mean? The eight is just much more aggressive and, and assertive, right? You know, again, I'm talking about these types at their lowest level of self-awareness, right? They're just sort of like ah, moving on autopilot, oh, right? Not course. really. Yeah, not checked in by not really, wings or n- Not checked in, right? You know, so uh, when you're checked in, I mean, you now you have freedom of choice and, and now you're able to make different choices based on, you know, your set values, right? But again, I think the the eight is more um, less polished than the three is. And and now, just to be clear, David. You, so the eight. Here's how I would describe the internal motivation or drive of the eight. It would be this: that the eight has a need to assert strength and control over others in the environment, in a need to mask vulnerability both from themselves and others so there's this it's uh i you know for lack of a better better way to put it you you could say for example sort of an iconic eight in the middle of the world right now is donald trump i was gonna say I mean, I, the, no, narcissistic uh, antisocial almost like that that's really where it's going in my mind okay well that's now that's when the enneagram becomes unhelpful right because when you start to talk about pathology uh-huh the enneagrams for garden variety neurotics you know what right. I mean? Like, it's just like within the bell curve of, of, you know, but when you get out on the tails, then suddenly it's, it becomes less and less useful as an instrument. You know, it's, it's just for- Yeah, no, not as a diagnostic tool, but just, uh, you know, to understand. Right. And to, to so, add but to when you go off the chart, that's what that eight starts to look like, right? It, it can get oppositional. Uh, the, the energy becomes pathologically oppositional. And then you run into all kinds of problems, right? As we as we know, um, you know, honestly, if that's the case, then for a three and an eight and other sort of what was the other one, the sort of sevens. control and the seven sevens, anxiety is definitely your best friend because if you can lean into those feelings, it will soften you and make you more malleable, make you more social, make you more connected, make you more vulnerable, make you being able to acknowledge your mistakes, make you more humble, make you more spiritual. There's so many ways that anxiety can just take down and also open up that callus, you know, to shave it off and actually be human underneath of it all. Like that's really where the Mm -hmm. opportunity of anxiety lies. Um, I think there's opportunities for all 
types. And as you were speaking, I was like, oh my God, like this is so cool. There's so many ways that anxiety can help. But for the for this cluster that I guess I'm most personally familiar with. That's can you talk familiar. about how, this is interesting. I, there's a system that I use a lot and it's uh, from a guy named Dr. Chip Dodd, but it talks about how fear, we all have fear and fear can lead to a gift. And he would say that anxiety is the impairment of fear. Could you, and to me, like you're talking about anxiety in a similar way that he talks to that he talks about fear could you distinguish again the difference for me between fear and anxiety yeah absolutely um the impairment of fear you know that's interesting um in some ways you're right like you know fear would be an actual fire alarm going off because of a fire anxiety would be a fire alarm going off because of a little bit of smoke but there's something that's much more impaired than 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 anxiety which is a fire raging and the alarm not going off at all. Right. That's how people die. People don't die from uh, anxiety, from the false alarm. They, they, they die from the alarm not going off. So I don't think it's an impairment of fear. I think it's a misuse of fear, but that's okay. That doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. It's happening for a reason. There might be something burning on the stove. It, it might not be a a deadly fire, but it's it's an there's something going on that needs to be addressed. I don't know if it's an impairment at all. I actually really do think we can thrive with our anxiety and use it as a blessing when we have the right tools. Now, it could become impairing if we don't heed those messages and take the opportunity to use anxiety in the right way, in the best way, but that's because we're not leaning into the anxiety. It's usually because we're not going there. It's because we're trying to avoid it and squelch it and remove it and pathologize it and medicate it away without having used it in a positive vein, which is the opposite. And that's, and I can, that's mm-hmm. exactly what the book is about in a nutshell. I can, I can see where your anxiety is a little more demanding, right, than fear in a way. I mean, it's like in it's because of the way it's showing up. It's like, oh, I better listen to this, whereas opposed to you might be able to squash the fear but the anxiety, like you're saying, Ian, when it starts showing up in your body, it's like, well, I need to pay attention to this. What's going on? Yeah, but, but, and we're going to, I want to get right into talking about this idea that once we accept anxiety, as I understand your premise, David, right? And we stop fighting it, which actually we could argue creates more anxiety. A hundred percent does. Yeah. Right. Not even argue. Then we, it can, there's no argument. Yeah, and we could, right. Okay. <laughs> and then we can, we can leverage it into a strength, which is the premise of the book, Correct. which I like, right? Yeah. So it's a reframing that once we accept like that anxiety is a natural part of life, uh, we can then leverage it to enhance relationships with ourselves, with others, and it can even be a, a, a catalyst for spiritual growth. So unpack that for us. Then I want to get some actual practical tips right from the book. You got it. Yeah. Just walk us through how we can turn anxiety into a strength. Great. Let's start how, how, how our society does not turn it into strength and turns it into a malady. So the first thing you mm-hmm. do when you have anxiety is you do what? You go to your doctor and you say, I'm feeling anxious. And the first thing they do is... Take out a script. And they pop, they give you they give you a script. For, they give you right. a prescription for for Xanax or Clonopin or anything else, and then you feel a little bit better. And then it starts to get worse. And then you say, "Oh my God, something's wrong with me because my doctor gave me this and it's supposed to be working." So then they give you another pill, and then they give you something else. And then you're trying your whole life to run away from your anxiety. And now we have the anxiety epidemic, where before COVID, twenty percent of the American public had an Ameri- had an an anxiety disorder, and today the number is fifty percent higher. Because we are running away from this normal, healthy emotion, 
and seeing it as a disease and trying to squelch it and shove it down as opposed to actually using it. I think we need to change our relationship with anxiety and understand that the only people who don't feel anxiety are those who are dead. If you have anxiety, it means you're alive. That's all. And if you're trying to get rid of all of it, you're heading in the wrong direction. We need to use it. We need to understand this is going to happen. Lean into it. Allow yourself. I'm not saying it's fun. I'm not saying it's fun. It's horrific. It's horrific. But that doesn't mean that it can't help us. And once we go there and allow ourselves to feel the anxiety, it can help us to understand more about ourselves, to be more self-compassionate, to be more compassionate towards others, to open up about our vulnerabilities, which is what connects us to other people. That's what creates real connection that we all striving, that we all are thriving, make us, that's what we're all seeking, right? That's the loneliness epidemic is really about people not, not being vulnerable with each other. And I think for those who seek spirituality, it's a tremendous gift because when I'm anxious, mm. when I'm anxious, I'm like, I need help. And I, I, and I'm okay with that, with understanding that my, my actual limits as a human being. And that's a good thing for me to do, especially, especially given my anagram, mm. uh, but it's the same for everyone. You know, it's so interesting to say that, and I want to circle back to spirituality before we get to the end, because sure. I really appreciate that that as a clinician, your willingness to talk about spirituality, because a lot of clinicians don't. Um, and I think uh, I'm a person in 12-step recovery from a alcohol and drug addiction. I didn't know that. And I, for me, uh, when I think about spirituality, we not only have to, for anxiety in my own life, I had to change my relationship, not just with anxiety, but at a higher level, maybe a different frequency. I had to change my relationship with uncertainty and powerlessness yep. in the face of not having control. You're, you're, oh, you also and, don't have control? Yeah, oh, definitely <laughs> not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the illusions of, of, of certainty and, and control are, are, have been deeply washed out of my psyche. I, I mean, I still struggle with it, but man, oh man, I know what, you know, that's that sort of higher band frequency for me. Yep. You know, it's like, um, so we, we can, you know, circle back to that in a minute. Cause I know it's, it's a big part of the book as well. So you're the message of the book. You, you, you not only give us, you know, uh, a diagnosis of where we are as a culture living in the age of anxiety as the 20th century was called. What, what do we do with our anxiety? Great. Like, how do we leverage it? Give me practical tools that that I can, like, you know, make actionable the moment I get off this call. Great. Well, I got I got nine tools in the book, so I'm not gonna go through. All right. I'm not gonna go through all nine. Even you know, I'm not that ambitious because um, I know it's not gonna work. But I, I I'll give you a couple. Let me just see. Um, you know, maybe something for you, like specifically. You mentioned on the four. Tell me more about the four profile. So I want to give because we were both fours, right? So let mm -hmm. me, let me, let me. Yes. You want something for you? Let's let's do this. Okay, great. Let's go there. I love that. So tell me more about the All four right. profile. So the four is called. Uh, sometimes we they're called the romantics. Um, sometimes they're called the individualists. The Enneagram four is probably the most complicated number uh, on the Enneagram. They are disproportionately represented in the arts. Um, if if they go off the rails, like if you see a, a, a four that is now going into the realm of pathology, mm -hmm. it's borderline. It's borderline. Uh, and so for the four, there is a need to they have this sense that there is something missing at the core of their person yeah. that everybody else seems to have mm -hmm. um and 
that, and without that essential piece in their makeup, they feel like they'll never belong. So there's this, they've been launched on a quest to find the missing piece inside themselves. And um, they have a need to be special and unique in a way to kind of uh, compensate for what they perceive as the missing piece and to win belonging. Belonging. So they have a, a, probably more than any other type, shame is the big issue for for that four. Yep, 100%. Okay. So one of the strategies that I have is it must have been really hard for you then to start this podcast and to start having a professional profile, like a pub- public profile. I have a very strong three wing. <laughs> yeah. And I'm also a particular, without getting too far into the, the, the Enneagram, I'm a particular subtype of four, which looks much more three-ish and seven-ish than an, a different variant. Got it. But a typical four would not have a public personality and a major podcast with, you know, millions of listeners. Mm. No, I think that's, might? no, I think that's, they might. Would it be hard they for might. them? It would just, it be hard for them to lean into that? Um, they tend to be withdrawing types. Yep. There um, you go. And so it would be a little bit more difficult. Yeah. Uh, they so tend to be the, the social. Exp- so that's where the opportunity of anxiety is. And this is in chapter three of my book, which is anxiety is many times, many times, an opportunity for us to push forward in what we want to accomplish and by overcoming, so to speak, uh, situations that make us feel anxious, we can build our resilience. So when people are socially anxious, for example, we have them ask random questions to strangers, ask redundant questions, raise their hand in class. We have them give a public presentation. We have them, that's a hard one, by the way, we have them wear you know, a tie that's kind of weird in order to, you know, intentionally, you know, try to, to see what kind of scrutiny they can, they can receive from others. And by doing these sorts of exercises, it emboldens them in a positive way and lifts them up. And they say, wow, this anxiety, I was so terrified what people are going to say about me, but it actually didn't really matter. People didn't notice as much. They didn't judge me as much. If anything, I got more attention and it was actually very positive. And I rose to the occasion. I was actually able to say what I wanted in class. I didn't freeze. I was able to speak to that audience. I was more sensitive and caring because people who are more introverted are usually more aware of other people's. So once they actually shed that or overcome that fear, they're, they're primed for interacting with others. They're like perfect candidates. Mm. How's that? So I love, yeah, no, I love it. I, I think, um, one of the things we tell, uh, you know, I guess what you're talking about here is exposure. It is exposure therapy, correct. So, so if, you know, with a four, we, we oftentimes say, you know, you can oftentimes pick a four in a room, like, like they're the ones that are dressed just a little bit differently than everybody else. They, they, they sort of relish the opportunity to be special and unique, which of course actually works against their getting what they really want, which is belonging. Cause the more special and unique you are, the less you belong. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Like, like you're not like running with the pack. Right. Um, but I think with a four, we oftentimes say, we want you just to go grocery shopping at Kroger. We want you to go to a regular grocery store. You don't have to be special and unique and go find the most wonder. You know, so I, we, interestingly enough in the Catholic tradition, they would say they call it contra Jerry, right? To do the opposite. Yes. Right. Uh, to, to do the opposite of what you normally would do. And I guess what you're saying is when you do that, you overcome the anxiety associated with it Correct. and you build to your term resilience, yes. your dialectical, tolerance, dialectical, your tolerance for it. Yes. In dialectical behavior therapy, we call it opposite action. 
mm-hmm. where the, I'm doing the opposite mm-hmm. of how I feel, and that action moves me over to a place of equilibrium. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, has its, right. has its roots in the writings of Maimonides from a thousand years ago. By the way, just interesting. Okay, uh, and so the, but okay, so the, you know, a thousand years ago, the Catholics picked it up and called it contra Jerry. Uh, put it in Latin instead. So uh, you know, it's okay. Everyone's drinking from the same fountain. Exactly. You know, so that's it, <laughs> all right. Something to me. You know, some something's in the air. Um, so talk to me a little bit more. You you just mentioned one, which is you know obviously going at something head on and, and trying to desensitize yourself to whatever it is that. Correct. Cause it builds you know, resilience though. The, the thriving occurs when you have more resilience, having desensitized. It's not just, I'm getting rid of my right. anxiety. It's right. when my patients go through exposure therapy. Like I've had patients who came in, they were terrified of spiders within two hours. They're literally handling a tarantula. And by the rest of the day, they cannot believe how far they've come and they feel so much stronger to face any life challenge. I have seen mm-hmm. that trans people transform in a day, literally in a day mm-hmm. from doing these kinds of yes. works. So it's a very powerful strategy to thriving in general. And that was the tool. You want another one? Yeah. Give me another one. All right. So um, I'll give you my own, um, which I've spoken about just a little bit, but one is in order to build connection with other people, it's very important to be able to acknowledge when we feel anxious. When I have difficult emotions and I go to my wife or I go to my close friends and say, hey, I'm having a really, really hard day. I'm facing this struggle. I'm not putting on my f- good face. I'm not pretending that everything's fine. I mean, that might be the public image, but I'm able to be vulnerable. Anthony, you mentioned that word before. To be vulnerable with them, that's what breeds connection and takes us out of the loneliness state. You know, years ago, I, uh, I gave a talk at Harvard College, and the head of the Harvard Counseling Center was there. And he said something I will never forget. He said that the number one predictor of students doing well in college, and they did the systematic research for many years, was having at least one other friend that they can really be real with them, that they can talk to them about it when they're having a bad day. And you can imagine, mm-hmm. Harvard is not the kind of environment where you're allowed to have a bad day, right? You have to be successful at everything. You got to mm-hmm. look great all the time. You got to be up super early and working through the night. But if you have at least one person who you can cry on their shoulder, a confidant, so to speak, it's enough to actually get you through that challenge. And we all need that. We need to be vulnerable. That's really what mm-hmm. saves me, I'll tell you. So that's a real sign of, of health in a three, right? Because typically... A three who hasn't done a lot of personal work has the most difficult time. They have a lot of feelings, but they have a lot of trouble naming the feelings. And they also typically have trouble naming feelings in others as well, right? When they're not very self-aware. And they become um, anxious or Mm. angry when there's pressure to be intimate. Mm Mm-hmm. Interesting. When there are sort of expectations of intimacy and, and pressure to go deeper in relationship. Um, now, um, so I, what I hear you saying is on your own journey, and this is the journey that's true for everybody, but this is particularly, I think, um, important for threes, to be vulnerable. So for threes and eights, that vulnerability is difficulty. It's hard. It is hard. For threes and eights. It's very hard for me. Yeah. It's not hard for fours. Uh, like, like, yeah, I, I don't have as much trouble being vulnerable. Um, you might have now, more that trouble be, being emboldened and doing that kind of thing or no? Definitely. Definitely. I would say that, that I, I am, I don't, I don't have, like Anthony was a successful professional songwriter in Nashville. We spent our lives, I mean, and 
I've written other books that were much, actually right now writing a book that's so vulnerable, it makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Oh my God. <laughs> and I'm thinking, yeah, no, no, it's, this book is transparent, uh, but not, not in a sort of mawkish way that is unhealthy or unhelpful. Right. It's not, I'm not doing work through the reader, but it's, it's very self-revealing, right? For certain types, that is very, very, very frightening. Yeah, not as much for that. me. <laughs> I don't know if I could do that. But. Yeah, no. This one, this one is this one makes my hair stand up a little bit, and and you know, hopefully it's it's done in a way that's sensitive and appropriate, um, and in service to the overall goal of the book. But my point is that I think different um, types relate to vulnerability. Yeah, like I just think for some people, it's it's a more natural language for them. I get than, that. Than, you know, that's one of the reasons I have nine tools in my book. You know, I think that um, exposure therapy is going to be my go-to because I was trained in cognitive behavior therapy. But to some degree, it does depend on personality and the presentation. I've seen patients who did not really gravitate towards exposure therapy or interpersonal things. And the spiritual dimension, to get back to that, was so critical because it had never been addressed in their mm-hmm. therapy. Because it's the type of topic that most psychologists and psychiatrists avoid like the plague and to the detriment yeah. of many patients. And that's, that's really the core of my mm-hmm. work at, uh, here in Boston. Um, it's one of the reasons that, I, that I'm, I'm here still. Is to, this is my, my, my research. So I think there's many different tools that we can use to deal with our anxiety, sort of depending on who we are, depending on our personality, depending on a variety of factors. It's presentation. Um, it doesn't have to be you know, just the two that we spoke about. Folks, you've heard me share on the show before that years ago, as a pastor, I burned out. I have seen this happen so many times to all kinds of Christian leaders and shepherds. Most people, in my experience, try to heal and grow in their own self-help program, but it's not enough. Now, for me, I've gotten so much help through intensive retreats, and that's what I want for you. That's why I'm also a big believer in the intensive retreats offered by my friends, Drs. Bill and Christy Galtier. You've heard them on the show before. They're therapists and they're founders of Soul Shepherding. With their team of senior spiritual directors, they will help you go deeper in your relationship with God, in your emotional health, and in loving relationships. Their faith-based psychology and spirituality is really life-changing. You can choose from multiple Soul Shepherding retreats across the U.S. You'll get to be personally mentored and cared for by Bill, Christie, and their staff in an authentic, faith-based community who are committed to serving God as leaders or shepherds. Plus, with the retreat program, you have the option to earn a certificate in the Ministry of Spiritual Direction. So here's what I want you to do. Visit soulshepherding.org today for a free consultation with a senior spiritual director on Bill and Christie's staff. It's your turn. You can go deeper in your relationship with God, in your emotional health, and in your loving relationships. Go to soulshepherding.org and click on Go On Retreat. Isn't it ironic, right? Isn't the word psyche coming direct for soul? soul. Oh, I mean, when you like psychology, you would think it would be the science of the, or the study of soul. It's the science and of yet anything we, but. We, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, when I think about spirituality, we let, let's, I think about it in the 12 step sense of the yeah. word, right? Like it does not necessarily have to be, have a religious container. Not at all. But, but to some acknowledgement that there is, a dare I dare I say this? Um, a for me, this is how I would put it: 
an intelligent, personal, loving force in the universe greater than myself, yep. to which I am inextricably connected by love. Great that has my back. You know, I, I think about Houston Smith, you know, the great teacher of uh, the professor of religious studies at, um, he was at Syracuse, I guess, when he, when he, find, he had been at Harvard, I think, in the 50s and 60s, maybe. Anyway, he got to 95 and, and someone said to him, so after all these years of studying Buddhism and Hinduism and Judaism and Christianity mm-hmm. and all these different things, can you come, can you just tell us what you think about God, God or, or what, whatever? And he said, I've come to the conclusion that we're in good hands. <laughs> I like that. And I love that as a as sort of a, a, a summa, you know, sort of statement of where, where he landed in his life, that we're in good hands. Now, how does that relate to spirituality and anxiety in, in, for you? Yeah, good, good question. Well, spirituality is any, any way of seeking the sacred. And, you know, I guess, you know, let me even jump back a little bit. Many years ago, at, I was working at uh, McLean Hospital. I was there training to do cognitive and dialectical behavior therapy with acute psychiatric patients. And uh, I was interested in spirituality. There wasn't really an opportunity to study it. But we, we, so there wasn't really an opportunity to, to pursue it professionally there. But we started doing some research and identified that an incredible number of our patients, and this is in Eastern Massachusetts, right? And you, you know, Ian, coming from the Northeast, you know that this is one of the least religious enclaves in the entire country. Take a guess what percentage of our patients wanted to have spirituality as a part of their treatment. Oh, in gosh. Eastern Massachusetts, right? Very secular, secular, secular town. I'm a, I'll just say 90%. No, it wasn't that high. <laughs> well, you, you set me up for a high oh, number. Yeah, Come yeah, on. Yeah, did. You know, I would have predicted 20 or 25. 65%. The answer is about 60%. That's correct. That's correct. Anthony, you need to be quiet. <laughs> Nobody likes you. I mean, it's okay. I accept you for who you are. <laughs> I love you unconditionally, whether or not you got the answer correct. <laughs> love on his three wing right now. <laughs> we're, all, we're all in it together. The answer is about 60% of our patients. And furthermore, when we started offering spiritual care, that's the number of patients that voluntarily signed up for it. So they meant it. Wow. They actually meant it. And whether that's through a chaplain or through training our clinicians um, to be able to address matters of spirit in the therapy room, which is something I've uh, devised and uh, created and and helped to promulgate throughout the uh, Harvard Medical School psychiatry system, uh, which has been a great journey. And it comes up in in the book. I think you were, we were talking about how it relates to anxiety a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. when we can and tolerate our uncertainty and understand, there's so little we know, there is so little we can control, because we're human. Like I, I don't know about you, I only have ten fingers and ten toes on two arms and two legs. Like how much can I do? I only have so much. Mm-hmm. You know, as my spiritual mentor says, I only have you know one quart of oatmeal and oatmeal in my cranial vault. How much am I supposed to do with that? I need help. I can't do it on my own. I need the right people to advise me. I need to be in the right place at the right time. I need to pursue my dreams and push myself to the edge. But at the end of the day, I need somebody who's going to lift me up when I feel like the, the, the I'm out on a limb and that it's starting to cave. I need help. And that, to me, anxiety is perfect for leaning into that spiritual experience and making us more humble, making us more connected. And feeling that loving mm-hmm. hand, sort of to use your um, analogy, feeling that I, you know, feeling that I'm in good hands. Mm. Is that y- yeah? Or is that 
you mentioned earlier because that you're going through this really, really challenging time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And but that you've discovered an anchor that's keeping you centered through it all. Can you tell us about that anchor? It's definitely my spirituality. Hmm. I've never prayed. Over Help it. us understand that. Can you? Can you? Are you? Are you comfortable talking about it? Yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm. There is something I'm. I'm struggling with. Without getting into details of that, I. I really feel like I need God's hand at this time. For me, it's God. I'm. Hmm. I'm coming from a, a more of a from a, a Jewish religious background. For many people, it would be you know something like a force, and I. And I. I think there's the. La- I'm just using the language which works for me. I need that. I need that support right now. And I, and I actually do feel like I have that faith that I am in good hands and that things are going to work out, even though many days this week, I couldn't see how. Hmm. I can't, I still can't mm-hmm. really see how. I still don't really know how I'm going to navigate through the maze and through the darkness. But I know hmm. that somehow I'm going to be held. I felt that this week. I love that. And I love that we were, uh, Anthony and I have used this illustration before, that um, in the, as I understand it, in the Christian and he, in Hebrew scriptures, that the word, there's like two words for seeing. And one is, it's implied, I think, more than a clear linguistic difference. But one is the physical act of seeing, right? It's just vision, right? But the other word is beholding. And to be held, it, it actually, in psychology, we'd say it's like mirroring. It's like that God looks at us the way that, that a mother looks at an infant, you know, that gaze, that locked gaze, and that softness comes across the mother's face. And you see that beholding moment. And so you actually use the word beheld, right? Like we are beheld. And to know that is a very, very powerful experience. It's almost like in a human context, that that gaze between the mother and the infant, that mirroring, which is so important to healthy development, it's never perfect, right? It's just never perfect. You wouldn't have a job if it was perfect, (laughs) right? 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 And so, but if you think about it, in spirituality, what we're doing is having the ultimate mirroring moment, right? It's, It's being beheld to be seen. You're 100% right. I don't only feel that God's watching what I'm doing. I, right. I feel like God's intimately connected to what's happening and mm. I'm being looked at with loving eyes, not just with yes. being examined by a physician. <laughs> yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And to me, and I love all the to me that's kind of where the money is. You know what I mean? Like, <clears throat> I'm a therapist. I love all the different tools that I have at my, my, my fingertips to help people and hopefully bring about some generative outcomes in people's lives. At the same time, I also know that the knowledge of being beheld to me is critical to my living with anxiety. So you're a Rogerian at the at core and uh, uncontrolled. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. No. I think I'm just a guy who's an eclectic sort of uh, um, I love it. bag of ideas and thoughts. About you know, when how I started life- first learning about Rogers, I'm like, come on, look, give me a break. You just have to love people. Like you got to give them advice. And I went into CBT big time. And then I saw how complex certain cases were. And I'm like, okay, well maybe we have to validate also. So I learned about DBT. 
And now here I am 20 years later, and I'm telling you, you're right. Loving your patients in a, in a healthy way, obviously, with boundaries, but uh, showing them that unconditional love and like, I'm here for you, I'm supporting you, and then using your skills in that context, there's, there's no question. That's number one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have loved this conversation, and I Thanks. wish, as I do, you know, every now and then, not every single time with a guest, that... I'm like, I wish I could say, let's have breakfast tomorrow morning and continue say, the conversation. You're in Mexico though. so <laughs> I am in Mexico most of the time, but, but I do hope our paths cross. I, so I want to remind everybody, you need to go out and get my new friend, Dr. David Rossmarin's new book, Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You. This is really, really good stuff for everybody because everybody ha- um, has to contend with their anxiety. It's part of just the, the human condition, how to live in a world where we feel uncertain and um, out of control and how do we navigate that. But your book I love because it, it gives very, very practical tools. It's applicable. It's actionable. It's not just theoretical. This is really wonderful stuff. And I, again, appreciate your vulnerability, your willingness to talk about your, your own journey. Again, Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You. David, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. This was enlightening, and I really appreciate the opportunity to meet and to speak. Thank you. Thank you. Anthony? Yeah. You know how we finish this up. May you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing. May you have rest. Until next time, everybody.